Welcome to Blue Collar Fitness. Your hosts are Trevor Powers, entrepreneur, athlete, and family man, Connor Burton, trainer, competitive bodybuilder, and kinesiologist, Josh Sargent, strength coach, graduate researcher, and educator. Blue Collar's mission is to bring reputable information to the masses. There's so much misinformation in the fitness industry. We want to shake things up and help you navigate the information to add value to your health, career, family life, and fitness goals. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to Blue Collar Fitness episode 38. We have an awesome guest today. He is the medical director of Marek Health and College Park Functional Medicine. He believes in and is an expert in preventative medicine, evidence-based practice, health and longevity, and has earned his medical degree at the University of Kansas School of Medicine and is now the same medical director of the company that Derek, more plates, more dates, is at, and he also interviewed on Joe Rogan Experience. He got a lot of his practice from the Cox Family Medicine Facility. And Kyle, thank you so much for coming today. We really appreciate it. Welcome to Blue Collar Fitness Podcast. Why don't you tell us how you got into family medicine and kind of your origin story and how you got inspired to go that route in the medical field? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Um, I've always known that I wanted to be a family doctor. My dad's a family doctor and has been for quite some time. Um, I actually work with him in the same building uh, just a couple days a week in one of my other clinics. But I saw how much he cared for his patients and how he could provide good holistic care, true mind, body, and soul, and take into account each individual's uh, you know, desires and genetics and uh, their, really their individuality as a person. So even since I was probably 12, I've known what I'd like to do. And I knew that I wanted to do true preventative medicine and individualized medicine. So I've tailored my education and gone to a medical school that's a top 10 in primary care um, that really emphasizes um, true preventative medicine as well and a residency that does the same thing. So um, that's how I ended up here. Um, obviously, with uh, working with Merrick Health, I'm, I've gotten into health optimization as well. There's not many doctors that are willing to talk to patients about, uh, you know, whether it's their hormones or optimizing performance, cognitive performance, athletic performance. People have uh, gurus for these things. Uh, people have health coaches and things like that. And they're awesome and they're fantastic. And there's many very good ones. But not many people have a doctor that they can talk to about that. Yeah. And speaking of doctors, uh, Dr. Kyle, when a person first starts out with you as your patient, I mean, what are the main pillars of health that you look at as far as a true preventative medicine? Um, where do you start? Where do you go from there? When a person first walks in the door of your building, walks into Marek Health, how do you really assess them? Um, what's your, your first priority when you start out? The first thing that I look for is uh, what a patient describes in their own words. So I can go over someone's health history. They can fill out a form that's this long and I can go over their labs and depending on what they tell me, um, the subjective information that they give me 
and that objective information can be interpreted differently in an evidence-based way. So when people come in, I say, you know, tell me in your own words what you want to accomplish with this conversation and tell me what your goals are long-term, whether it's goals for their sexual health or for their body composition or just preventing pathology. Maybe they want to prevent a cancer if they can or prevent um, heart disease, something that might run in the family. I want them to tell me that up front. That way I know what the baseline is and what our goal is. From there, I usually talk to them about lifestyle interventions, as I think that those are uh, the biggest bang for your buck. And uh, then we can continue on and build a relationship and build a trust or maybe even a friendship. And uh, I feel like that's the most beneficial thing to do in the long run. So right now in the sport of bodybuilding, there's been a lot of really unfortunate events where people are passing away. As a preventative medicine doctor, what are some things that people can do to look out for themselves and make sure that this doesn't keep on happening? I think a lot of people are interested in ways that they can protect themselves and also protect their health. Yeah, definitely. So many diseases are preventable. There's lots of modifiable risk factors for cancer or for heart disease, plaque in the heart, ischemic heart disease, even congestive heart disease. There's also uh, things like diabetes that are preventable uh, to some degree if you catch it at the right time. So uh, there's a very wide array. I kind of explain it this way. So um, when humans are born, there's no real diagnostic test. Or when humans complete puberty, there's, there's no computer that you can hook us up to. You can't uh, find a chip and then say, all right, this human was created correctly. There's no defects or no genetic polymorphisms or no biomarkers that uh, do convey risk. But when a mechanic or a car company does the same with a car, they do that for every single car that they make. Even if they're made on the same assembly line, they hook it up to their magical computer. And I'm not a mechanic or a car person, but they hook it up and their computer will tell them, um, they'll look at all of the various parameters and they can tell, yes, this car is good to go or no, this car is not good to go. So, uh, you know, we have the technology, we have the science to do that to some degree. Uh, an insurance company might not totally cover it, but there are affordable ways to get that done for your own health. And yeah, Kyle, speaking of uh, various parameters and the car being able to be ready to go to be given the, the green signal, um, let's talk about, you know, more sports performance and aspects like that in bodybuilding and being able to have that green light. Should bodybuilders test like a certain amount of times, whether they're in the off season, in season, and should that be just once per year, um, twice per year? Like, how would you do that with a very advanced individual? Yeah, so frequent comprehensive labs would be the first thing. And, um, you know, obviously don't know the, the personal medical history of many of these individuals who have passed away or had serious health problems. But a lot of people do get their labs done, but not all lab panels are created equal. So if you go to your doctor and you just get your annual labs, it's usually a lipid panel, a complete blood count, and a complete metabolic profile, maybe plus or minus a TSH and a couple hormone levels. So if you're pushing the limits of either athletic performance or you're pushing the limits of body composition and bodybuilding, then it's just like a, a race car. So if you're racing your race car, that's very dangerous to do as well. 
And you really need to go to a mechanic or a shop that understands race cars and, uh, you know, top shelf performance. It's the same thing for the human body. After that, you add in genetic testing, looking at different polymorphisms that can make you more prone to uh, kidney disease, that make you more prone to blood clots, that make you more prone, prone to plaque buildup or congestive heart disease. That's kind of the next step. And then diagnostics would be the final step at the top of the pyramid. Um, you know, advanced cardiac imaging um, for prevention. That's a, an easy one to start with. And there's also many other types of advanced imaging as well. Yeah, and for, uh, you know, things like advanced imaging and blood lab panels, uh, for myself, I'm not really sure how often to get my blood labs done. So I just come off a show, like hypothetically, I just came off a show. And I'm not really sure if I should do it just once after the, sh after the show and once before the show and once during prep, just to make sure everything's all good under the hood. For enhanced bodybuilders that are taking exogenous hormones, uh, how many labs would you recommend per year? for those bodybuilders that are pushing their limits and what kind of markers should they be looking for? Like what kind of blood panels and do you really keep that private with your clients? Yeah. And just like, what kind of health approach do you have with that? For an enhanced bodybuilder, I would recommend at least three different lab panels per year, at least. And that would be for an enhanced bodybuilder that has a, a long off season and a relatively short on season, if you will. Um, you know, I approach enhanced bodybuilders just like I would every other patient, um, non-judgmentally. And I tell them the only reason why I'm here is to help. So uh, for that reason, a lot of patients, including patients that might struggle with like nicotine use or alcohol use or whatever other thing that might be going on in a person's life or a patient's life that can affect their health, I approach it the same way. But I would set that as a minimum bar uh, three times a year for many enhanced bodybuilders, especially competitive ones, um, it would be much more than that. So do you recommend doing labs, say when a competitive bodybuilder is blasting, when a competitive bodybuilder is cruising and maybe right after a show? Um, so basically those three times to get an idea of what's going on in all the different scenarios. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, the, my clients that are in similar situations, obviously I do my best to counsel them regarding the risks of the various things that uh, they're doing, but uh, I call it a high tide and a low tide. So um, when, they're, when there's damage to a beach, the shore is both damaged at low tide and high tide. So if you're trying to figure out why, is the, uh, why are the businesses on my beach getting wiped out, and you're only looking at low tide, then you're not understanding, well, is it a flood? Is it a, is it a tsunami? Is it the wind? So for that reason, I, I have uh, enhanced bodybuilders and strongmen and powerlifters um, and just people in general look at low tide and high tide and even uh, ones that are natural as well. So um, they're, you know, if they're doing a prep and they're, uh, you know, doing a, maybe they're doing a salt cut, um, you know, maybe they're doing a water fast, they're in a steep deficit, they need labs as well. That makes sense. Yeah. I know a lot of triathletes um, and endurance runners also get uh, a lot of like, really high morbidity factors for, for heart attacks and cardiac events. Is, should, should naturals that are in endurance activities do this? 
Yeah, I think it's termed runner. Yeah, runner's heart. So uh, that's also very important. So a lot of them, you know, I still get, uh, you know, calcium scores if they're their appropriate age. Um, you look at their ASCVD risk very carefully. You look at their CRP. Um, kind of depends on the person. Uh, if you're someone who's at risk, then starting getting them around 40 to 50 is relatively safe. But for a lot of people, I even have patients in their 20s that are getting calcium scores. Um, it is important to remember uh, not to tangent off too much on a rabbit trail, but with the calcium score, it pretty much just shows calcified plaque. So it is possible to have uncalcified plaque as well. Okay, so a little side note, Kyle. I just want to um, thank you so much for your advice the last time we spoke when we uh, had that interview and uh, about your your patients yeah. and you just being non-judgmental towards them. Um, I've really kind of ramped it up with my clients, and I think it really helps for people to be comfortable, to be able to get close to you, and to be able to just kind of, you know, really listen to what you have to say. And then that way they can just be themselves. So um, kind of goes back to what you said before about being able to potentially be friends with your patients. Um, yeah, it just helped a lot. So I really appreciate your content that you're, uh, that you're putting out there. So it's really helping out us in the fitness community. Yeah, my pleasure. And also, yeah, I just want to touch on um, a, little bit, a little bit more about um, that super TRT. So those, uh, those sports supplements, those super sports supplements, I mean, being able to just like have an individualized course, like how do you assess those people? I mean, it's just, there's just so much with body composition and pushing your limits. Like what would you do with different types of people who, I mean, like they're just really needing to. They're, they're pushing the limits, but they're doing it within reason. How do you deal with the population that's doing quote unquote super TRT, like vigorous Steve or Leo Longevity has been pushing online? Um, these are a almost new class of patient or or athlete, I would think. What are, what are your hungers? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of this is individualized, of course. But when people are thinking about super TRT or TRT plus, um, Many times they're talking about something to increase their athletic performance or improve their body composition. So a lot of times these people might benefit from something else. You, you know, I always ask people and do a, um, an independent assessment. Why is this particular individual struggling with body composition or are they really just pushing the limit? And uh, is there any other pathology at play? Is there insulin resistance? Is there a dysregulation of their appetite? Um, is there dysregulation of different hunger signaling hormones like leptins or adiponectins um, or ghrelins? So uh, if that's the case, then a lot of times we can address those things in a fairly safe way. So uh, some of the medications that you mentioned, there's a class known as GHRPs and GHRHs. They kind of go hand in hand. And those are people with growth hormone deficiency, which is relatively rare we usually measure it with an IGF-1, which is usually a Z-scored depending on the age. So um, I see those as medications that are used relatively rarely for people with growth hormone deficiency or borderline growth hormone deficiency that also have significant or clinically significant symptoms. So um, those is kind of niche. People used to use them in a performance enhancing context mainly because it improves recovery and improves sleep. 
significantly. So um, they are something that can potentially be used to push the boundary unless you're an elite level bodybuilder. I suppose, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you guys can make the case that you are. Um, They aren't going to make any clinically significant difference. And oftentimes a patient is better utilizing something else. So um, about IGF-1 and its derivatives and its peptides, um, IGF-1 is a little different. So there's endocrine and exocrine IGF-1. It's released for like different reasons, but I don't see IGF-1 as a particularly good muscle building. There's been lots of studies and meta-analysis. Some of them disagree, but I feel like the summary of them shows that IGF-1 does not move the needle that much. And I don't think I've ever actually used IGF-1. Um, I believe Joe Rogan was public about either using IGF-1 or using it in the past or someone he knew um, in his podcast with Derek recently. Yeah, he switched from HGH to IGF-1. Yes, correct. But uh, yeah, in my opinion, it doesn't actually move the needle significantly. And if you're doing it for either recovery or body composition, its uh, harms might outweigh its benefits. There has been a few studies and... Um, I haven't looked at this in a while, so it might not be 100% accurate, but I believe it is uh, individuals with a really high IGF-1, there is increased concern for tumorigenic risk, so tumor risk, and or shortened lifespan. So uh, those correlations and not causations, those correlations are still pretty concerning to me. Can metformin be used to mitigate some of the negative side effects or or things that happen with IGF-1? Potentially, yeah. So metformin has many different mechanisms of action. It acts on GLUT2 and GLUT4 in, uh, in muscle and in the liver to help with insulin sensitivity. It also helps decrease cell turnover. So it increases IGF binding peptide 1. So IGF binding peptide 3 is largely genetic. IGF binding peptide 1 is largely due to lifestyle medications, etc., So it does help increase IGF binding peptide one to decrease free IGF one. And it also decreases IGF one as well. That's why for bodybuilders like uh, big Rami or Ronnie Coleman, if they had taken metformin, it probably would have caused a tiny bit less muscle just because they're not. uh, So uh, they don't have so many insane growth factors. They're not anabolic a thousand percent of the time for most people. It's not going to have a big difference, but, um, that's the theory behind that and why you might hear some people say metformin is going to waste away all your muscle. Um, pretty much simply not true. And in the long run, you could actually make the case that if you're able to maintain that insulin sensitivity, if someone happens to be utilizing an insulin protocol, which is kind of a bioidentical hormone replacement, or if they have diabetes, then um, that can actually help maintain your response to insulin at a lower dose of insulin. Yeah. So then go back to what you said about big Rami and, Big Ronnie, I mean, those those guys are huge and they have like incredible levels of, of like myostatin inhibitors. Is that pretty much correct? Yeah. And then go back to, um, you know, just bodybuilding in general. Like, is there a point to where like, you know, cell turnover and telomeres is, is correlated with that? Like, what is cell turnover and what are telomeres? Yeah. So each time a, uh, a cell turns over, the telomeres on the DNA short, like they shorten a little bit. And uh, I believe David Sinclair is one of the anti-aging specialists at Harvard that talks about telomere length a lot. So there's various things that you can do to maintain the length of your telomeres. For example, intermittent fasting can help. 
Um, also, uh, changing the rate of your protein intake can help. For example, uh, BCAAs can be good for muscle building potentially, but if you take them like intra workout and how a lot of people do, there's just not great evidence for them. But if you have an increased protein intake in the morning, it's probably slightly better than in the in the evening. But at some point, the pro of intaking all this protein, and they don't even they don't necessarily have to be BCAAs. The protein intake in general can slightly speed up cell turnover. So to be clear, for most people, BCAAs are not useful at all. But if you're going to take like a protein shake or something, you might as well take it in the morning. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as um, you know, different ways that you can maintain the length of your telomeres. Metformin can help that a bit. Rapamycin, which is sirolimus, can potentially help, or everolimus. The mTOR inhibitors, which are basically the opposite. So um, mTOR stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. Classically, the BCAAs activate it significantly, and things like rapamycin or sirolimus inactivate it significantly. So kind of change in gears here, I've been wanting to ask you about this because I've been seeing a lot of people online recently or, or a few like Leo longevity talk about SSRIs and their potential as, um, basically protecting your, your neurology, protecting your brain. Traditionally SSRIs have been the devil in terms of the longevity community. What is Leo talking about and should we look into SSRIs? So SSRIs are considered antidepressants. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, by the way, Kana is a non-selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. But with SSRIs, they help with the myelinization of different neurons, potentially helping connect new synapses. What they're particularly good for is trauma or PTSD. So after a certain period of time, which is highly individualized, you can tell um, that they kind of help move on from that. It's kind of the move on hormone as well. But it depends on what your baseline level of serotonin is. So if you're taking a CAT scan or an MRI of the brain of a 90-year-old, oftentimes they have cerebral atrophy or brain atrophy, where there's actually more um, you know, cerebrospinal fluid or CSF. You see more fluid relative to the actual brain tissue, and that's related to risk of dementia. So for that reason, SSRIs have the potential, uh, theoretical potential, and probably clinically significant potential to help prevent that from happening over a long period of time. There's some theories that say the more androgenic you are or the more your steady state of maybe TRT is redlined at the very top all the time, that you could be more at risk of uh, decreased serotonin levels and Occasionally, especially if a patient has a predisposition to a bit of trauma or PTSD symptoms or a bit of anxiety or stress or depression, perhaps, occasionally they will do a course of six to 12 months of an SSRI that they can tolerate every few years or every five to 10 years. So they do have a uh, potential benefit in anti-aging. Yeah, then also you could just get your butt to the gym and work out or just go for a jog, get some general exercise <laughs> like a lot of people miss. that works too some people you know yeah then um also how can people and the viewers understand that exercise is really beneficial to your body and your brain because of dopamine serotonin and i believe that oxytocin is involved with uh post exercise as well 
Yeah. So there's several different mechanisms of action of why exercise helps. So exercise is kind of like therapy. Uh, It helps literally everything and for multiple reasons. So it's always the right answer if uh, it's a question, yes, exercise helps. That's why it's um, the second one of my big five, diet, exercise, sleep, sunlight, and stress. So um, one of the reasons why it helps is it's going to help regulate your gut. So uh, you're very sympathetically driven during exercise, after exercise, it helps return you to a parasympathetic state. Many good bodybuilders are very parasympathetic. It can help regulate your gut bacteria and digestion as well. And then it can help decrease the uh, peripheral insulin resistance to help insulin sensitize and help with digestion. So um, much of the serotonin in your body is actually produced via your gut flora. So if you're looking for probiotics, you can look at studies and certain strains, uh, um, you know, species or genuses are more related with serotonin production in the gut. And you can also alter your diet um, to help, you know, alter that as well. So both diet and exercise. And that's one of the main ways that you can help with natural serotonin production is just using your symbiotes, the bacteria in your gut to produce it. Um, And again, the other way would just be your sympathetic to parasympathetic balance. So uh, when you exercise, many people notice that if they haven't been exercising, their sleep is horrible. Maybe the first time they exercise, they're so tired and sore that they can barely sleep and lay on their back. But then over time, they sleep better and better. And a lot of people say, you know, I'm just so tired at night from the exercise and from the activity of the day that I pass right out. And that really, really good quality sleep is going to help regulate all, you know, both your dopamine and your serotonin. And is keeping the ball rolling on, um, you know, the body's hormones. Hypothetically, let's say a bodybuilder post-show was, you know, just being prescribed from his coach to go on HCG, Clomid, different types of fertility hormones. Are those necessary? I mean, if, I mean, unless the bodybuilder wants to have kids, unless he wants to knock his wife up, then that's pretty much necessary. But I think like in my case where I'm not having kids, I mean, do I need to do that? Does it depend on my blood panels? Like where would an enhanced bodybuilder go from going to a show, just blasting a lot of exogenous hormones and then going to TRT? Is the, are the fertility hormones like HCG necessary? It depends. So um, if the bodybuilder is, uh, you know, if they're on TRT and they need testosterone replacement therapy, then there's not really any reason to add in those medications unless they desire fertility. And then it's a risk-benefit analysis. If a bodybuilder comes to me and they're after a show and perhaps they're an enhanced bodybuilder, or perhaps they're not, perhaps they just run a, a, you know, a very strict diet and they cut down to 6% or 7% body fat and their natural production was uh, you know, severely impaired then depending on what their biomarkers look like, depending on what physiologic process is going on, then oftentimes those people do benefit from HCG and or CIRMs, uh, like clomiphen or Novaldex or Aloxifene. Yeah, so if, you know, if a bodybuilder doesn't do PCT, you know, post-psychotherapy, post-show, and they go, you know, right into testosterone replacement therapy, is that going to affect, like, the generation of sperm, like spermatogenesis long-term? Because, like, honestly, I'm, you know, I'm concerned about that. I'm sure the other bodybuilders are and listeners are. Um, like, where should they go from there? 
If they're interested in a fertility PCT, presumably, I don't know if that's to maintain fertility or to achieve fertility in the next year or so. Those are kind of two different situations. Um, if it's to maintain fertility, then uh, if they're an individual that's uh, on TRT or needs TRT, oftentimes just maintaining uh, testicular function over time is enough, which can be achieved through a variety of different mechanisms. And some people just taking taurine and NAC can maintain testicular function and prevent atrophy and fibrosis. Uh, and some people, they need, uh, you know, something different than that. But if they desire fertility imminently, my uh, goal, if possible, is to usually um, attempt to come off completely from everything um, if they're able to. Some people are not able to function with a high enough quality of life off the TRT, and then it's a different discussion. But to come off everything if they're able to, maintain good natural function, and then address epigenetics. It takes about 60 days for spermatogenesis to occur to, you know, synthesize a new sperm. And a lot of times we talk about things like L-carnitine to help the mitochondria in the, in the sperm and help the flagella function so that they swim better. A lot of times we talk about epigenetics, um, sodium butyrate, things like that to kind of help reset epigenetics. And then getting a good baseline, um, you know, androgen, estrogen, and progestogen profile that way, uh, those offspring or potential offspring would have uh, as normal epigenetics as possible. I've never heard of taurine and NAC being used as a fertility aid. Do you have most of your patients use it? And, and how do you use it with TRT or other patients? Uh, not with all my patients. Uh, you know, everything does have side effects. Um, taurine and N-acetylcysteine are relatively safe. I have seen people react to taurine with fast heart rates and um, strange pains in the chest, especially at high doses when it gets them into multiple grams. I've seen people get uh, headaches with N-acetylcysteine. Um, uh, and again, N-acetylcysteine is also a prescribed medication. Uh, we give NAC to people that have Tylenol overdoses and things like that. So um, yeah, they're not without side effects, but they're safer than a lot of the other supplements and compounds that individuals utilize. A lot of my favorite supplements on Amazon got pulled, and I realized it was because a lot of them had N-acetylcysteine in it. There's still a few areas where people have been getting it, but eventually I believe it's just going to be a prescribed medication. Gotcha. So what's your opinion on it being pulled from being available over the counter and becoming a prescription medication only? That's a, that's a difficult question. Um, I certainly think it's fine for it to be a prescribed medication. Um, personally, I have bought NAC over-the-counter before. Uh, I did not have uh, my doctor prescribe it to me. So personally, I'm okay with that, but I will leave the politics of that discussion up to the, uh, the politicians, and I'll stick to the medicine. I'm really interested in this protocol. What's the dosage... What's the dosage on that? How much N-acetylcysteine and how much taurine do you have your patients use? Um, I know it's in a lot of other supplements, so um, we're going to need to get an individual dosage. Most people can tolerate around one gram a day. So some people take 750 twice a day or 500 twice a day. Uh, these studies on testicular function and preventing the fibrosis, um, to my knowledge, are in mice. So some people will extrapolate and use the formula that comes from mice and that, that gives you a much higher dose. So you mentioned on the last recording that we did 
that afterwards that you had some new information about HCG and HMG. Can you can you spill the beans, man? Spill the tea. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, it depends on what you're using it for as well. But some people, even if it's just empirically, uh, or if it's also to maintain testicular health, they ask about HCG, which is human chorionic gonadotropin. Some people also ask about HMG or minotropins, which is basically a combination. And both of these are biologic products usually formed from the um, urine of either pregnant ladies or menopausal ladies, respectively, sterilized, um, dehydrated, usually lyophilized, et cetera. So they have many different actions. So it, they're used significantly differently than things like gonadorelin, um, or things like, uh, you know, kiss peptin is a different one that can kind of help keep the, um, access going, if you will, um, from the level of the hypothalamus down, but uh, gonadotropin is uh, in a similar category of GnRH uh, agonist. So it kind of works like um, gonadotropin releasing hormone, which is released in a pulsatile secretion. So it's more targeted, but um, it's not actually like uh, causing the release of GnRH. So um, the new finding is that HCG is essentially becoming harder and harder to get. Its brand name is Pregnil. There's a few other brand names as well. Uh, part of the reason behind this is uh, it is an agonist at the TSH receptor as well. So it does affect your levels of thyroid hormone. Uh, in fact, the H HCG is very high during pregnancy, as mentioned. And that is one of the ways that, uh, you know, pregnant ladies prevent themselves from getting hypothyroid is because it kind of helps uh, increase thyroid hormone production independent of TSH since, since it works on the TSH receptor in the thyroid. So, um, you know, if, if you have a thyroid pathology or if you're at risk of like a goiter or things like that, um, then you very well might not want to use HCG. So uh, it is a medication that has many different effects. And although it's technically bioidentical, it's not really bioidentical in men. It's also different from other GnRH agonists or analogs in that it both upregulates 5-alpha reductase and aromatase. So if you're at risk of um, you know, side effects from too much androgenicity or estrogenicity, then it might not be a good choice. So um, the, yeah, there's... There's lots of different info, um, but HCG is definitely not something that should just be handed out to every single person that is on hormone replacement. So if you're experiencing any kind of like gynecomastia, like, you know, real gyno, it's probably safe to just avoid HCG altogether, right? It depends on uh, if it's true gynecomastia or pseudogynecomastia, but with true gynecomastia, it probably is something to avoid or be very judicious with. Yeah, I've only used one vial of HCG congruently with my TRT, but whenever I use it, I get a lot of estrogenic side effects. If I use it for a while, it'll kind of level out, but right at the beginning, I get a bunch of acne, and I get some gyno in my left nipple. So definitely congruent with your thoughts. Yeah, no, uh, a lot of people do. So uh, for those exact reasons, um, a lot of... 
Yeah. Gonadarillin, it, it, it is promising. Um, it's, a, it's a more targeted medication. So it can increase LH and FSH in some degree because of it does stimulate the GNRH receptor. Um, there's uh, some concerns regarding it for oversensitization. There's not a ton of studies of people that have taken it for a really long time. There's a lot of studies on people with different syndromes, like Kalman syndrome, that have taken it for fertility, in which case just recombinant FSH is almost always better. So, um, yeah, it's, it has a couple cousins, uh, triptorelin and then also lupron or luperelin. And those are long-acting. So gonadarelin is very short-acting. Triptorelin or, uh, gonadar- or sorry, lupron are very long-acting. And there's several other ones. So there's a ton of these other GNRH agonists, which um, some of them, uh, you would think that they would, you know, the long acting would be better because it would stimulate the receptor more. What ends up happening is it stimulates the receptor so much to so much degree that you have no FSH and LH production, um, even potentially permanently. So there's a lot of lawsuits with Lupron, um, Tryptorelin's cousin that's long acting. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, they use it in like pedophiles and things like that, um, in some cases, which is crazy to think of, but, um, some people talk about micro doses of tryptorelin and micro doses of Lupron even, and things like that just make me very nervous because of the lack of evidence. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard of a lot of my friends using tryptorelin hundred micrograms post cycle instead of using serms like Nolvadex and clomiphene. Um, I, it seemed to work really well, um, help, help people out quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So with, uh, with, with blood pressure, I mean, you can, you can hear about blood pressure being in some ways beneficial for power lifters. Uh, in my case, like blood pressure is really, really helpful for bodybuilders. Um, I mean, with that being said, like, should you get your blood drawn, you know, or give your blood pre-show, like as a bodybuilder, just to, for general health? Yeah. And then also, I mean, with that being said, like, should you also just, like, pay attention to your hemoglobin levels? Like, because, like, mine was at a certain level. I think it was pretty, it was on the high side. Um, I mean, like, where would you go to, like, where would you go with your with your blood labs? Because isn't it just important to check your blood plasma? Yeah, absolutely. And I usually think about blood pressure being more beneficial for a power lifter and not as much for a bodybuilder, but I could be wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, I know as far as hemoglobin hematocrit, I usually get significantly more nervous past a hematocrit of around 55%. So um, most people know about erythropoietin or EPO abuse, as you guys mentioned earlier, especially with cyclists. Uh, there's been a lot of cyclists that have died of strokes because of hematocrits, even in the like the 60s and 70s. So if you think about it, if your blood is only 25% plasma and 75% red blood cells, that's a pretty significant problem. Um, yeah, mine was pretty high like that. 48%, really, that's not too bad at all, especially if you were on DHT derivatives. The more androgenic the compound um, or the more related to DHT it is, it tends to disproportionately increase erythropoietin and also the renin angiotensin system activity and then downstream to that erythropoietin and uh red blood cells yeah then with like a you know epo blood cells on that topic just going back to blood pressure i mean 
how often should you get your blood tested just like just for the general population of, of people i mean um i mean is there a bare minimum for you dr kyle and <laughs> like what should people like you know a lot of my clients have, have day jobs they're not into sports performance activities um what would you recommend to them i know it's case um independent but um yeah where should they go with uh, their blood work yeah uh, I consider the bare minimum blood test to be one time a year. Uh, twice a year would be better with one being fasting and one not being fasting. Again, for low tide and high tide. And a blood test, that's just a snapshot. That's just a, a picture of what's going on during that test. It's not necessarily congruent day to day, right? Yeah. If you tested your lipid panel seven days in a row, they would all be pretty significantly different. Right. Even with a relatively uh, similar diet. And Dr. Kajla, I want to just compliment you real quick. Your post on, was it after breakfast or lunch? <laughs> um, yeah. So like <laughs> your, your Instagram post, I'm trying to re recollect going back to your, your post about nutrient partitioning on walks. Um, you're with your family and that was like post breakfast. Post breakfast or post lunch. Yeah. Yeah, dude, that was an amazing post. So I really appreciate that. Um, how could people understand nutrient partitioning and how does walking help induce that? Uh... Yeah. So nutrient partitioning, whether it's walking after a meal or like altering your macronutrients, depending on if it's in the morning or pre-workout or post-workout. Um, I feel like uh, there's many different benefits. So there's a performance benefit. You know, uh, any power lifter or bodybuilder, they'll tell you about, you know, if they had a subpar performance or a great performance, a lot of times it's attributed to diet. So they say, well, I didn't have my, uh, you know, my usual pre-workout meal and I did not have a good workout. So it has, makes a big difference for performance. It also makes a difference for things like insulin resistance and digestion. So uh, it can improve both things pretty significantly. If you think about it on a grand scale, thousand foot view, if you're putting in a lot of building blocks into your body, then you want to utilize them in the way that's either going to, uh, you know, help your performance or uh, push them into muscle cells to help regrow them. You don't want to, uh, unless you don't have enough body fat, which is the case when some people are recovering, um, you don't want to partition them to fat buildup in general. Yeah. With nutrient partitioning, how does walking help induce that process? Like, how does that work physiologically and biologically? Yeah, so walking is a great cardiovascular exercise. So you literally burn more glucose and triglycerides. You're pushing them into your cells very easily. So your muscle cells, whether it's your cardiac muscle or whether it's your somatic muscle um, in your legs, um, you're burning that to create energy in order to power yourself to walk. So why don't we change things up a little bit and talk about the most anabolic activity you can do more anabolic than any hormone or any food. Let's, let's talk about sleep. What are some things you can do to optimize your sleep? Are there certain sleep trackers out there or sleep supplements? What, what can we do to optimize our sleep and make sure that we're, we're doing our best? Yeah. Um, as far as recommendations for people that have, problems with the sleep, or it seems like they have sleep pathology, I have a very low threshold for doing a sleep test. I also have a low threshold for telling people to track their sleep, look at their delta wave or deep sleep and their REM sleep with things like Aura or um, fitness trackers, things like that, BioStrap. 
Um, there's a lot of different sleep trackers, but, um, you know, uh, that's a good data. And those are things that we can change, whether it's through CPAP or um, some people need to breathe better through their nose. So I send them to ENTs quite often as well. There's also uh, sleep specialists or um, polysomnographers and neurologists that are sleep specialists as well. And often I send people there too. So uh, that stuff makes a huge difference. There's also a lot of lifestyle changes. I think it's Ben Greenfield that uses the 10-3-2-1-0 rule. So within 10 hours, caffeine, and then three and two, you cut out the exercise and the food. Within one, um, you try not to look at bright screens too often. And then uh, zero snoozes in the morning. Then first thing in the morning, a nice bright full spectrum light, blue light or actual sunlight is even better. Um, that's some great sleep optimization techniques. A lot of people aren't able to do that because they work night shifts or um, they have to stay up late and they have different bedtimes and such. But a nice consistent bedtime is good. Um, for a lot of people, I added uh, basically a, a nice low dose of melatonin, um, sometimes even a melatonin receptor agonist or Melteon. And that can help reestablish their circadian rhythm as well. So we're trying to go through the full gauntlet of therapies here for different hormone therapy replacement. What is your take on thyroid medication or thyroid replacement therapy? I recently started using Armor Thyroid myself, and I'd be really interested to hear your take on it. It's been life-changing for me. Yeah, so thyroid medications are a pretty similar discussion to something like HRT, actually, because there's a huge portion of the population that can potentially benefit from thyroid medications. Getting the objective data and also um, telling your healthcare provider your symptoms is very important to start with to see if you have symptoms of hyper or hypothyroidism. And then after that, getting your data, like getting your antibodies tested, your TPO and your thyroglobulin antibodies, getting your uh, free T3 and free T4 tested in addition to your TSH, uh, especially if you're on HCG, um, you know, especially if you're taking biotin, stuff like that. All that is important. So um, that being said, if patients are having symptoms and they seem like, uh, you know, they're um, not at risk of some of the um, side effects of thyroid medication, like palpitations, AFib, arrhythmias, things like that, then a lot of patients will benefit from thyroid medication. Usually I repeat a value. The general modus operandi is if your TSH is between about 4.5 and some people say 10, but between about 4.5 and 6, you should probably repeat a value. Even if your TSH is a little under 4.5, or let's say you get a couple and some are below, some are above, maybe one of them is even 3.0 and you're still having symptoms and you're at really low risk of side effects, then perhaps you should consider a thyroid medication. T3 is the active hormone, so it's more likely to cause side effects. So in general, for people that are at risk of those side effects and they can convert T4 to T3 well, we usually recommend T4 monotherapy or a combination of the two. But many people, they have really high reverse T3s and it's hard to get through or they have low deiodinase enzyme activity and they do benefit from a touch of T3. But it's highly individualized and I don't believe that, uh, I'm not really in the camp that believes literally everyone should be on T4 only. And I'm also not in the camp where literally everyone should be on at least some T3. So if someone wanted to optimize their metabolism or their endogenous thyroid production, 
what is something that they, what are some the foods they could focus on or what are some supplements that they could use to optimize thyroid production? Yeah, probably so. I always tell people to optimize their micronutrients and their cofactors like their magnesium, their zinc, their selenium, their vitamin D, their iodine, and make sure they're having good sources of iodine and not iodine. You know, you could take a radioactive iodine and it'll crowd out all the other iodine. That's what, uh, you know, like the nuke pills are is, uh, you know, iodine to crowd out the radioactive iodine. So a good source of bioavailable iodine that's nascent iodine from something like kelp in the ocean is the best source of iodine. Um, A lot of people that have borderline thyroid function, I have them take a supplement or I have them do chronometer and optimize their micronutrient intake in their diet. Uh, Micronutrients in your diet are almost always bioavailable, which is awesome. But uh, the supplement I usually recommend, which I'm not sponsored by, but I wish I was, is EU Natural Spark Thyroid. And it has pretty much everything that you would want in it. I've heard of a lot of horror stories with thyroid medication where people abused it for a show or they used it for a while and became dependent upon it. And then they had to go off of it or they ran out of their supply and really messed up their body composition. What, what can people do? And, uh, and how does that affect people? Yeah. Um, many times it's just a matter of waiting to re to go back to your homeostasis. So pretty much all the cells in your body will turn over in a couple years. And, uh, just like someone who gets, uh, liposuction or someone who goes on a GHRP and they have, um, a change in the distribution of fat for better or for worse, Usually you'll kind of return to your set point or your a normal, unless things like insulin resistance have changed. Usually you're, you'll kind of return to that point after a period of time, but doing a little bit of a safe, um, very slow, clean bulk, and then another safe, clean cut and doing it right the next time is the faster way to kind of redistribute that body fat. So you definitely don't want to take any shortcuts with uh... Thyroid medication, like T3, T4. <laughs> Don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, shortcuts with thyroid medication, especially high doses of T3, I'm particularly not a fan of because it can cause cardiac arrhythmias, even fatal ones like uh, like a ventricular tachycardia. It can increase the risk for that. I'm also particularly not a fan of a fat brain uh, supplement, which might eventually be an anti-aging supplement in microdoses called uh, DNP. So... Um, I think it's a relative of TNT. I could be wrong though, but there's a lot of different fat burning supplements that are very unsafe. Um, Isn't DMP one of the ingredients used in, in rat poison? Yeah. So I had a, uh, a friend of mine who was prepping for a bodybuilding show, his, his very first time doing it using any compounds. And he was having these massive cheat meals on the weekend where he was eating whole pizzas and boxes of cocoa pebbles and he was still getting shredded. I mean, it, he's able to burn a ridiculous amount of calories um, with not a lot of cardio utilizing this compound. The, the thing is, it's just, it, it, it's so dangerous because he would end up in the bathtub trying to cool down if he took too much. Like you're just sweating, all your workouts are nasty. You don't want to be around your girlfriend because it's crazy. Um, but is this something that the bodybuilders at the highest level need to utilize to be competitive? Yeah, uh, probably is. So uh, 
a lot of the things, and I understand why people might need to or choose to utilize certain compounds for their profession and it's their livelihood and income and it's how they support their family. But uh, you always got to wonder um, about, you know, the concept of using a, a safe dose. So everybody has a different uh, threshold for their risk tolerance. And it seems like the threshold for a lot of people is just too high. Or maybe they haven't had a discussion with a health coach or a doctor or someone who's able to really accurately tell them what that threshold is for that certain thing. So uh, for something like DNP, it's probably very low. So if somebody absolutely had to for their livelihood, then maybe using a tiny microdose of it. Um, but yeah, it's just important to know where that threshold is for you individually. So going back to thyroid, like, what is the threshold that an individual should be using um, for their dosage when they're taking these medications? I know that, you know, you're, this isn't medical advice. You're not telling people what to take. But if someone was going to go about trying to figure out what type of um, medication they should take for, for their thyroid, for their show, or whatever they're going to do, um, what, what dose of T3 or T4 or, yeah. you know, armor thyroid or whatever medication they're going to use for their show, yeah. what, how much should they take? Um, you know, what, what type of parameters should they, they keep in mind when they're looking at this type of medication? It depends. If their starting TSH is greater than 10, then the correlation with things like heart attacks. So if, if someone's TSH is, let's say it's 40, and that and their T4 and T3 are also probably very low, they have a significant, like a very clinically significant hypothyroidism. If they don't, if they choose not to go on the medication, then their risk of things like heart attack and all-cause mortality are significantly higher in a, um, in like an, exponentially higher way, depending on how poor their thyroid function is. So for them, it's extremely important. And that's another reason why for people with overt significant hypothyroidism, I'm a fan of a higher proportion of T4 to T3, because T3 is a quite fast half-life. T4 has a much slower half-life around a week, six to seven days. So there's even been studies of people taking their T4 only twice a week or even once a week all in one mega dose and they do okay because it has a pretty long half-life. So in that case, um, you know, it, they probably wouldn't have any clinically significant symptoms, but if someone's on like mostly T3 or a pretty high proportion of T3, then they will definitely notice that they feel worse and they can very well become symptomatic. That's awesome, Dr. Kyle. So last question, what do you have coming up on the horizon for yourself? What are you looking forward to? What kind of plates do you have spinning? And uh, what piece of advice would you happen to have for, you know, me and Josh here and also the viewers and the listeners of the show as far as take care of yourselves? Yeah. So on the horizon for me, uh, over the next week, I will be at the A4M, the Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine Conference. And uh, I'm looking forward to that um, for myself and for everyone else. Continuing education is super important. So hopefully a year from now, I am significantly smarter and wiser than I am now. And hopefully everybody is. So uh, that's what I have on the horizon and uh, what I implore people to do as well. 
I'd also encourage people to find a primary care provider, a doctor, an NP, and uh, find someone that they really connect with. And that, you know, there's uh, doctors who might be great for some people that aren't as good for other people, but uh, look for one just like you would uh, for anything else. Um, find someone that you have good rapport with and hopefully establish a lifelong connection with them. Well, that's a sound sage piece of advice because, uh, you know, me and Josh here, like Josh always pushed me to work on continuing education, you know, always work on that con ed. So um, props to you, Josh. And uh, thank you so much, Kyle, for that piece of advice. Like continuing education is huge for us trainers. I mean, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of continuing education over there at the, uh, the good old conference in uh, Las Vegas, huh? Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be awesome. Um yeah, I mean, what are your expectations going into the um, the Marek Health Retreat? I mean, are you guys going to go into a spa and do some jacuzzi sessions or what's going on? Is there, is there some a, Wim Hof breathing? Some Wim Hof breathing, you know? <laughs> is Wim Hof going to be there? <laughs> is Mark Bell going to be there? But um, Hopefully that's some good treats. Some good treats. Snacks. There's going to be some new practices. <laughs> um, yeah, just kind of what are your expectations going into the retreat? Uh, it should be pretty fun. Um, going in with low expectations, uh, just trying to learn a lot. And I'll have fun with all the other healthcare providers that are going with me that I know through one way or another. So uh, looking forward to it. By the way, the other analogy that I use is um, it's kind of like a certified health planner. So people who care a lot about fin finances or investments, they often get a certified financial planner and they're investing in that person to advise them regarding their finances. And uh, nobody really gets a certified health planner. So that's why I'm a fan of people. You know, you can have a health coach, you can have a chiropractor, you can have a naturopathic doctor and a traditional medicine doctor, an MD or a DO. And uh, often a little investment in the current day will compound and have, uh, you know, compounding interest, I suppose, with your health in the future. Words of wisdom from Dr. Kyle Gillette. Mm -hmm. Sir, thank you so much for coming on the show. Give us another shot at this recording, man. We, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Kyle, for your time. We really appreciate it. It was uh, awesome, and have fun at the retreat. Thank you, guys. My pleasure.